Dear colleagues, your subcommittee could conceivably become part of a proud history of serious bipartisan oversight stretching from the Teapot Dome investigation to the Boeing investigation, to the Watergate hearings, to the tobacco hearings, to the select committee on the January 6th attack. Or it could take oversight down a very dark alley filled with conspiracy theories and disinformation, a place where facts are the enemy and partisan destruction is the overriding goal. Yeah, I think it's going to be that second one, Congressman Raskin. That's that's the one they're going for. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. And good luck to him. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Because it ain't going well. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Hey, yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle's KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Bird and Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites, amongst other fine affiliates, Blanketing Planet Earth, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com, now in our 20th year of troublemaking and muckraking. Thank you very much for joining us today. We will get to some of those hearings you heard um, Jamie Raskin citing at the top of the show there. We'll get to some of that shortly. It is not going well for Republicans in that regard, but that's coming up in a bit. Let me start with a couple of updates to a few stories that we've been following over the past several weeks. Both updates, I think, are actually very good news, with one, uh, the first one here, being a actually a very pleasant surprise. Oh, good. I like pleasant surprises. Yeah, I know. Kind of a switch these days. That's why I thought I would start the show this way. Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. Uh, You'll recall a few weeks ago on this show, we were joined by Craig Holman, the longtime governmental affairs lobbyist and congressional ethics expert from uh, Public Citizen. He was here to warn about the new House rules package that Republicans had passed as their very first order of business after they finally elected a House speaker after nearly a full week of trying to 15 long voice votes, etc., Uh, at the beginning of the new Congress last month. Well, there was much to be concerned about in that new rules package that Republicans adopted, including a bunch of stuff that now House Speaker Kevin McCarthy had added to the package by way of concessions to win the votes of the far, far, far right wingers in his caucus. 
where, uh, you know, with such a slim majority of seats for them in the U.S. House, Republicans now have to kowtow to these far right wing lunatics in order to get anything done at all, at least without Democratic help, which Republicans, at least for now, don't seem to want on anything. So one provision in that rules package would, as Holman explained at the time on this program, essentially gut the Office of Congressional Ethics. That's a special independent outside agency to investigate ethics complaints such as, oh, I don't know, freshman uh, congressman from New York, George Santos, to look into his lies about everything, including questions about where hundreds of thousands of dollars given to his campaign last November may have come from and how it was spent. They could also look into things like Kevin McCarthy and Jim Jordan and Andy Biggs and Scott Perry and all these Republican members of Congress who refused to answer lawful congressional subpoenas for testimony and documents last year by the now dissolved bipartisan House Select Committee investigating Trump's January 6th insurrection in 2021 including the role that was played by some of those Congress members in that attempt to steal the 2020 presidential election. But the Office of uh, Congressional Ethics, or OCE, as Holman explained, uh, that's made up of outside independent investigators who cannot be uh, current members of Congress or lobbyists, etc. And the office itself was created as part of a huge ethics and lobbying reform overhaul that Holman helped to get passed back in 2008. It was meant specifically to counter the decades of whitewashing by the House Ethics Committee, which is separate from the Office of Congressional Ethics, the House Ethics Committee, which, as Holman told me at the time, operates in secret and was, quote, literally designed to sweep ethics matters under the rug. So naturally, the Republicans wanted to kill the Office of Congressional Ethics in their new rules package uh, because, well, it's much more effective. It's independent. The office uh, of OCE, the OCE is actually required, is mandated by law in this 2008 rules package. So they couldn't kill it outright, but they did try to essentially starve it to death. They mandated that anyone serving on its eight person uh, for Democrat, for Republican board of directors, anyone who had served more than eight years would have to immediately leave the board. Their membership will have expired and any vacancies had to not only be approved by the remaining four board members, which would be three Republicans and one Democrat after the expired members were tossed. But those seats and the entire office, all of the staffers had to somehow be filled within 30 days of the passage of the new rules. As Holman warned us at the time, the board is going to be dysfunctional, he said. No other committee, he noted in the House, is required to staff up everybody within 30 days and can't do anything after 30 days. And Holman told me it would likely be all but impossible for Democratic House leader Hakeem Jeffries to find and vet and nominate three new Democratic board members within the 30 days that he has to had to do this in order to avoid the death of the critical office of congressional ethics, whose existence since 2008 Holman credited for, in fact, quadrupling the amount of sanctions that came out of the otherwise useless House House Ethics Committee, 
which used to sweep everything under the rug because they operated in secret, but with the OCE actually doing real investigations and having to publish its reports publicly, well, that has forced the Ethics Committee to actually force their hand to actually take action. So with the fears of the death of the OCE today, it appears their death, as it is said, may have been greatly exaggerated. Oh, good. At least uh, thanks to some apparently very quick work by Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries. Roll Call is reporting today, even though ethics advocacy groups predicted House Republican changes to the Office of Congressional Ethics could sideline the watchdog in the 118th Congress, they now say their worst fears appear unlikely to be realized. So disaster may be averted. It does seem to be good news. They credit House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries for swiftly filling Democratic slots on OCE's board. And they say they are now optimistic about the office's ability to operate after all. Uh, As they took office, uh, I'm sorry, as they took over the chamber last month, roll call notes, House Republicans instituted term limits on board members for the OCE that disproportionately affected holdover Democrats on the panel. Republicans also said the OCE had to make hiring decisions within the first 30 days. Quote, Jeffries responded with warp speed, said Craig Holman, a lobbyist at Public Citizen, who's quoted in the article. Uh, All of the other ethics groups and experts here who are uh, cited say that they are relieved after all of this. One of them said, given how fast Jeffries appointed new board members, I'm expecting the new board to also work very fast. It's all good news, he added. Well, I'm glad to see Jeffries got it done. So, indeed, uh, some very good news there uh, to report, at least for, you know, folks like you and me who have not violated the law or congressional <laughs> ethics. Uh, it may not be such good news for folks like, oh, I don't know, George Santos, Scott Perry, Jim Jordan, Andy Biggs, others, including, by the way, yes, Speaker McCarthy himself. And another story that we need to update that we covered several weeks ago, including, I believe, uh, somewhat before the Christmas New Year break, if I recall. And again, this one is also good news. Pennsylvania Democrats won a trio of state house special elections This past Tuesday night, handing them a clear majority after many years in the minority and after a few strange quirks that left majority control sort of up up in the air, up for grabs in the past month or two, following Democrats finally winning back the state house majority at least nominally, last November. The victories in all three special elections on Tuesday now give Democrats the upper hand in a chamber that has seesawed in control since the November elections, resulting in a bipartisan, quote, independent speaker arrangement that had quickly gone sour. But with Tuesday's wins, the Democratic Party now is in a stronger position to block GOP-led initiatives, including a potential anti-abortion ballot measure, according to NBC. So what happened? In short, uh, what happened was that Democrats won back a majority in November with 102 seats in the state house in Pennsylvania to the Republicans' 101 seats. That was the first time in a decade that Democrats had won the majority there. But it was temporary because at the same time, on the very same ballot, two members of the House actually won 
other elections, one for lieutenant governor of the state, the other for U.S. House, which meant they had to retire. And uh, a Democratic member of the state house who had served for many years unexpectedly died, leaving Republicans then with a two seat majority, 101 to 99, at least for the time being, at least until special elections could be held to fill those three seats, two of the retired members and the one who died. All of them were in heavily blue districts, which was likely to finally restore the Democratic majority that voters had elected in November. But there was a few very confusing weeks there. During the uh, confusing uh, interregnum, I guess, uh, Republicans claimed that they were actually in control of the body and they tried to then delay these three special elections. In other words, that death of that member opened up an opportunity for the Pennsylvania Republicans to try a power grab. To tr- exactly. They did. In fact, uh, Democrats claimed that they were in control of the chamber. They tried to schedule the elections as soon as possible which would be this week. And there was a rump uh, and, and, and Republicans were trying to say that they had the majority. They got to schedule these elections. Meanwhile, as this fight was going on, a rump group of Republicans joined with a rump group of Democrats to elect who they saw as an independent Democratic member to be the House Speaker rather than the presumed new Democratic speaker who would have been, by the way, the first black woman to lead a chamber of the Pennsylvania State House. But on Tuesday, Democrats won in all three districts, according to the AP. All three districts encompass suburbs around uh, Pittsburgh and other areas of Allegheny County in the southwestern part of the state. Joe Biden had carried all three districts in the 2020 election by at least 16 percentage points. So there was never any question about Democrats winning back those three seats. But in the meantime, there was all these fights about who was in control and who could decide when these special elections actually would be. A a dispute uh, about all of this led to the group of Democrats and Republicans coming together to back this uh, supposedly moderate rank and file Democrat to run things. He promised to operate as an independent, but things turned sour quickly because some of the Republicans who had supported the guy called on him to resign because he did not, they claim, honor a commitment to register, to leave the Democratic Party and to register as an independent. Meanwhile, the chamber had been at a complete standstill since that guy was sworn in. There have been no votes or uh, rules or committee assignments. Nothing has passed, leading to some speculation that Democrats would nominate a different speaker, most likely the original one that it looked like it was going to be. The Democratic floor leader, Joanna McClinton, uh, originally thought to be the one who would lead the chamber if they won back the majority in the special election. So we will see the three Democratic wins on Tuesday now put the party firmly back in charge of the House majority, even if narrowly, and for the first time in more than a decade in Pennsylvania. So Democrats hold the House. A Democrat is uh, the uh, holds the governorship. That's uh, Josh Shapiro was elected in November and Republicans still control the Senate with a narrow majority in the House. Democrats will be able to now hopefully we'll see, but block the Republican legislation 
among the most consequential of which was a GOP-backed constitutional amendment that asserts there is no constitutional right to an abortion in the state. The Republican-controlled General Assembly passed this proposed amendment last year as part of a, a, a another bill in a process that ended up bypassing the Democratic governor entirely. However, in Pennsylvania, proposed amendments to the Constitution can only be placed on the ballot if they pass in two consecutive sessions, uh-huh. which is why control of one of those two chambers in Pennsylvania is so important. This is why elections matter, Correct. voting matters, and especially voting in special elections yes. matters. Yeah, uh, it really does. Uh, and uh, you know, I know you say it all the time, elections matter. I do. Uh, but in this case, they, you know, may have these special elections, at least on Tuesday, may have just protected reproductive rights for millions of women in the great state of Pennsylvania. One more from the elections matter file before we get to a break and we come back with Republicans uh, sort of blowing themselves up with their own nonsense in the U.S. House, this time in regard to Twitter and Hunter Biden, as we have been warning or promising you that they would. Uh, this actually from last week, we weren't able to find any time for it, but Minnesota Governor Tim Waltz signed legislation last week adding a, quote, fundamental right to abortion in state law, the first proposal in an expansive agenda moving at the uh, Capitol in Minnesota to solidify the state's status as a safe haven for reproductive rights. The measure that we're sending to Minnesota, to, the message that we're sending to Minnesota today is very clear. Your rights are protected in this state, said Walls, surrounded by uh, legislators and supporters. Quote, you have the right to make your own decisions about your health, your family and your life. Isn't it odd that Republicans who pretend to believe in personal freedoms actually oppose this sort of a thing? But they do. It's because they don't actually care about personal freedoms. They just say as much to uh, try and win elections and then take those freedoms away from you. Minnesota Democrats who now narrowly control a trifecta in state government after winning majorities in both the House and Senate last November, along with Governor Waltz's reelection. So they now control a trifecta in Minnesota for the first time in years and years. They have full control of the state government, and so they have fast-tracked uh, the Reproductive Rights Bill following the U.S. Supreme Court's reversal of Roe v. Wade last summer. That struck down nearly 50 years of federal constitutional protections for abortion and other previously constitutionally protected rights and personal freedoms. Walls's uh, signature one month into the legislative session makes Minnesota now the 16th state to spell out a right to abortion in state law, uh, but the first to codify those protections since Roe was overturned. Quote, because you row, row, rowed your vote, Minnesota <laughs> is making history, said uh, House Rep Carly Kotsia Withuen, who uh, sponsored the bill in the House. Minnesota forever will be a North Star. As every one of our neighboring states continues to deny fundamental rights to their citizens. 
But that's not all the uh, Democratic trifecta now in place in Minnesota is doing, uh, as Desi Doyen will note in our Green News report a little bit later, with some big news out of the state this week on the climate front. We will get to that later. But all of this by way of reminder that, yes, elections do matter. Have we said that yet? And if you don't like what your elected officials are doing, as Barack Obama used to say, uh, still does say, don't boo, vote. I'll add, don't stay home, vote. Make sure you vote in every damn election, including special elections, and put better people in power if you don't like what you got. All right, speaking of better people and not liking what you got. Uh, Republicans are now in power in the U.S. House, sadly, but as predicted, they are already blowing themselves up this week as they begin ridiculous hearings on all manner of things. But if they're willing to uh, blow themselves up, who are we to not help them? GOP pretend victimhood and Twitter files madness is next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. The broadcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Look at Harry in the alley by the light switch. Who watches over you? Make a little birdhouse in your soul Not to put too fine a point on it Say I'm the only bee in your bonnet Make a little birdhouse in your soul Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. The, uh, the House GOP's hilarious, if it weren't so corrupt, subcommittee to attack the actual federal law enforcement apparatus currently investigating many House Republicans and Donald Trump kicked off its first hearing on Thursday, according to David Kurtz at TPM. The uh, committee is called the Weaponization of the Federal Government. The title of this hearing is called Hearing on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. As Congressman, Democratic Congressman from Maryland, Jamie Raskin, noted during the Thursday hearing. Millions of Americans already fear that weaponization is the right name for this special subcommittee. Not because weaponization of the government is its target, but because weaponization of the government is its purpose. What's in a name? Well, everything is here. The odd name of the weaponization subcommittee constitutes a case of pure psychological projection. When former President Donald Trump and his followers accuse you of doing something, they're usually telling you exactly what their own plans are. Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, this uh, hearing, this committee, according to TPM's David Kurtz, is a full frontal attack on the on the rule of law masquerading as a probative investigation, period, end of sentence, he writes. <laughs> well said. You'll see a lot of news coverage, he says, of this hearing that will serve to amplify and legitimize it. Well, we will see. House Republicans could run the Barnum and Bailey circus into a Capitol, hearing, a Capitol Hill hearing room. Room, and political reporters would still cover it as a hearing because it's in a hearing room. Duh, what are you, stupid? 
That's what he says. Just remember, Kurtz writes, the Justice Department under Donald Trump was more politicized, the extent of which we are still learning, than at any time since Watergate. And the Trump play adopted in full by the House GOP now is to accuse your opponents of exactly the wrongdoing that you are committing. It's an obvious and easy to follow playbook, he writes. Don't be fooled. To that end, perhaps we will have more coverage of Thursday's hearing in uh, fu- on future broadcasts. But on Wednesday, the much hyped House Oversight Committee hearing targeting Twitter apparently did not go as well as Republicans had planned. In fact, not by a long shot. In fact, it backfired in sometimes spectacular fashion as a CNN business headline declared. This hearing was based on the phony sturm and drong that was caused by uh, what Twitter's new owner Elon Musk has dubbed the Twitter files when he opened up the social media company's internal messaging system recently to a few selected theoretical journalists to write stories about whatever they found in hopes of backing up the idea that poor Republicans somehow, who call themselves conservatives, were not only mistreated by Twitter up until Musk purchased it, but somehow Twitter actually stole the 2020 presidential election from Donald Trump because for about two days back in October of 2020, they prevented the widespread sharing of an article by the Rupert Murdoch-owned New York Post, citing what was purported to be uh, information found in an abandoned laptop belonging to Hunter Biden, the president's son. Actually, he wasn't the president at the time. Uh, But Joe Biden's son, and it included all sorts of scandalous personal emails that was found on this laptop. This all happened when the FBI had been warning social media networks in advance of the 2020 election that they expected another hack and dump operation by Russia in the lead up to that 2020 election, just like the one that we saw before the 2016 election when the DNC and Hillary Clinton related emails were stolen and dumped to WikiLeaks for publication. When the Hunter Biden laptop story broke in uh, early October of 2020, Twitter and other social media sites did not know how to deal with it at the time. And they prevented it, at least for a day or so, from wide circulation while they tried to figure out how to best proceed, especially since they had been given warnings by the FBI about something like this that could happen. So this is what Republicans are now saying resulted in a rigged election for Joe Biden. This, those about two days when the story was still available to be read at the New York Post and everywhere else, but it wasn't allowed to be widely circulated with links on Twitter in early October, October for about two days or so only this about three weeks before the actual November election. This is the great Twitter FBI theft of the 2020 election that you may have heard about as the Trumpers are now pretending the once credible journalist Matt Taibbi used Using selective files from the internal Twitter archives, he pretended to make these claims that somehow the government, apparently, by the way, Donald Trump's own FBI at the time, was somehow 
censoring Twitter. These knuckleheads claim that the FBI paid millions of dollars to Twitter to censor stuff that reflected poorly somehow on Joe Biden. This is Donald Trump's FBI doing this. And uh, they were you know, paid to ban users who supported Donald Trump. But that's actually not what Taibbi's selective quoted internal no emails actually showed for those who bothered to read them, as I did, and I suspect many right-wingers did not, or they did not care about the actual facts they found there. Twitter, in fact did receive money from the FBI, but that was money that the FBI had to pay them, according to the law, because it was in exchange for responding, for Twitter responding to various unrelated requests for documents and information regarding crimes and such. And even Taibbi himself said that he found no evidence of the government forcing Twitter to censor anything. And yet, here we are with Republicans now pretending to be the victims of a grand government censorship scandal and conspiracy and a First Amendment violation, even though Twitter, by the way, is a private company. It's allowed to censor anything it likes. And making it all even more absurd, as the GOP House hearings revealed on Wednesday, the government actually did try to censor Twitter after all, but failed. It turns out that the Donald Trump White House did the very thing that these so-called conservatives have loudly claimed without evidence that the so-called so deep state did. Yes, the Trump administration actually pressured Twitter directly to censor and remove unfavorable content, including one notable example that came up near the end of Wednesday's hearings, finding that the Trump White House tried to get Twitter to take down a tweet back in 2019 by a model and TV personality who called Donald Trump a name, a name that I don't think I can say on FCC radio. Yeah, you probably should. Probably shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. But his uh, fifis were so hurt that the White House tried to muscle Twitter into getting rid of this tweet. They declined to do so. They left it up. But there's your example of the weaponization of the federal government violating the First Amendment to try and strong-arm a private company into censoring free speech. Oops, that came out at the hearing on Wednesday. That came out after a bunch of other ridiculous and embarrassing stuff for Republicans in what was essentially their first major meeting of the uh, hearing of the Oversight Committee. It included at various times ridiculous claims from GOP committee members like Pat Fallon of Texas and Clay Higgins of Louisiana, uh, including suggestions that the former Twitter employees who were testifying were somehow pedophiles and criminals. Uh, just to give you a small sense of some of the buffoonery at this hearing coming from the Republican side of the committee room. Mr. Chairman, it's clear conservative voices are being silenced on social media and in the, in the mainstream. I, I appreciate this hearing. I might also suggest we look into holding one on DirecTV, Newsmax, and OAN. You, ladies and gentlemen, interfered with the United States of America 2020 presidential election, knowingly and willingly. That's the bad news. It's going to get worse. Because this is the investigation part. Later comes the arrest part. Your attorneys are familiar with that. Mr. Chairman, I'd like to spend five hours with these ladies and gentlemen doing depositions surely yet to come. Uh, you go, Congressman. <laughs> 
Uh, uh, meanwhile, back here in the world of reality, in fact, there there will be no such arrests yet to come of former Twitter employees. Sorry to disappoint you there, boys. In the uh, lengthy hearing on Wednesday, however, former Twitter executives explained why a 48-hour hold was placed on promotion of a single new article on Twitter. And remember, it's just 48 hours. It went back up on Twitter right after that. Actually, it never came down on Twitter. That's the thing. They just wouldn't allow it to be uh, shared, retweeted, and so forth. Yeah, they didn't even remove the links, as I understand it. But uh, this situation was instituted in part because they had to make a very fast decision. They had limited information at the time, right before the election, a month or so before, and in part because it also included non-consensual publication of nude photos of Hunter Biden. Ranking uh, Democratic member on the GOP-led panel the uh, is uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin, again, of Maryland. He contrasted Joe Biden's wildly successful State of the Union address on Tuesday night, detailing a huge list of accomplishments over the past two years with what Republicans are now trying to do, their current agenda to investigate allegations that Twitter's content moderation policies somehow suppressed right-wing voices. We return not to focus on advancing this robust agenda of progress, but instead to take up an authentically trivial pursuit, all based on the obsessive victimology of right-wing politics in America. The majority has called a hearing to revisit a two-year-old story about a private editorial decision by Twitter not to allow links to a single New York Post article made for a two-day period that had no discernible influence on anyone or anything. The New York Post published the article on its own pages, and it was carried by lots of other media outlets. It was widely discussed, including on Twitter itself, even during the brief moment in time when links weren't provided, and it was a fixture in right-wing media for the next three weeks before the election. I think even the chairman and other members of this committee were out on TV and social media talking about it. But instead of letting this trivial pursuit go, my colleagues have tried to whip up a faux scandal about this two-day lapse in their ability to spread Hunter Biden propaganda on a private media platform. Silly does not even begin to capture this obsession. In America, private media companies can decide what to publish or how to curate content however they want. If Twitter wants to have nothing but tweets commenting on New York Post articles run all day, it can do that. If it makes such tweets mentioned in the New York Post uh, never see the light of day, they can do that too. That's what the First Amendment means. Twitter can ban Donald Trump for inciting violent insurrection against the Union as he was... uh, Uh, impeached by the House of Representatives and his 57 of 100 senators found he did. And it can also try to resurrect his political career. Those decisions, however heroic or imbecilic you think they might be, are protected by the First Amendment in the United States of America. Rather than conspiring to suppress right-wing mega speech, as my colleagues astonishingly claim, Twitter and other media companies knowingly facilitated Trump's spread of disinformation and gave voice to his followers' glorification of violence and calls for civil war. 
That was constitutional law professor Jamie Raskin, congressman from Maryland at the House Oversight Committee on Wednesday. Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio tried to argue that the FBI had notified Twitter about some postings that violated its terms of service. In some cases, Twitter took down the posts and others they didn't, according to uh, former head of trust and safety, Yoel Roth, who uh, one of the witnesses on the panel on Wednesday at Wednesday's hearings. Uh, he told Jim Jordan that, no, he did not believe receiving a request to uh, review material from the government amounted to a First Amendment violation in any way. In the cases referred to here, this would have been Donald Trump's FBI, don't forget, sending requests for review to Twitter. This was his FBI back in 2020, which uh, Democratic Congressman Jerry Connolly of Virginia noted when bringing up evidence showing that then-President Trump frequently pressured Twitter himself to moderate content, whereas neither private citizen nor President Joe Biden ever has. My, 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 what happens when you hold a hearing and you can't prove your point? <laughs> it's wrong for government to call Twitter and say, take down a tweet. Did I hear that correct, Mr. Roth? That was my understanding, yes. Yeah. So on May 27th, 2020, President Donald J. Trump tweeted, and I quote, Republicans feel that social media platforms totally silence conservatives. We will strongly regulate, he went on to say, or close them down before we ever allow this to happen, unquote. It's appropriate for the President of the United States to direct or otherwise influence a social media company to take down its content? I think it's a very slippery slope. Mr. Roth, Ms. Gaddy, Mr. Baker, any evidence that Joe Biden's ever done that? Certainly none that I'm aware of, no. I don't recall anything like that. There's no evidence he's ever done that, but there's plenty of evidence Donald J. Trump tried to do that. And um, if we're going to have a hearing about the misuse of social media and the intrusion of government in the content on social media, we've got an environment-rich target, but it's not Joe Biden. It's Donald J. Trump, and of course, we don't want to talk about that. We don't want to talk about Russian bots and Russian fabrications using fake accounts on Twitter to a political purpose, and it's not to help elect Democrats. Um, and we don't want to talk about four years of Donald Trump manipulating the truth and trying to manipulate social media and threaten it uh, or directly to try to shape it by taking down content because it was critical of him personally. Um, and that's what we ought to be talking about as we move forward, not the subject of today's hearing. I yield back. So you can get a sense how things did not go as well for Republicans as they might have hoped. New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she actually cited tweets by Donald Trump calling for congresswomen uh, who are naturalized citizens, as well as herself, by the way, and uh, AOC 
actually is a citizen. I think she was born here. But uh, focusing on, uh, you know, Congresswomen like Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, uh, calling to, quote, go back where they came from. The That sort of racist trope was actually listed as one of the violations of Twitter's terms of service. However, as former Twitter official Anika uh, Collier Navaroli confirmed... After Donald Trump's tweets to that end, Twitter executives actually ended up changing the platform's rules, their own terms of service, uh, service to accommodate Trump's violation of those rules. As part of your responsibilities, did you review this tweet? Yes, it was my team's responsibility to review these tweets. And what did you conclude? My team Ray, made the recommendation that for the first time we find Donald Trump in violation of Twitter's policies and use the public interest interstitial. For the first time? Yes. And at the time, Twitter's policy included a specific example when it came to banned abuse uh, against immigrants as in they specifically included the phrase, go back to your country or go, or go back to where you came from, correct? Yes, that was specifically included in the content moderation guidance as and an you, example. You brought this up to the vice president of trust and safety, Del Harvey, correct? I did, yes. And she overrode your assessment, didn't she? Yes, she did. Um, and something interesting happened after she overrode your assessment. A day or two later, Twitter seemed to have changed their policies, didn't they? Yes, that trope, go back to where you came from, was removed from the content moderation guidance as an example. So Twitter changed their own policy after the president violated it um, in order to potentially accommodate his tweet? Yes. Thank you. Um, so much for bias against right wing on Twitter. <laughs> so far from victimizing or censoring right-wingers on Twitter, like Donald Trump, the company actually changed its rules to accommodate violation of those rules by right-wingers like Donald Trump himself. AOC then asked Ms. Navaroli about an actual right-wing account that is still on Twitter, which is still violating its terms of service regarding the incitement of violence, and uh, those tweets apparently remain on the service to this day. Ms. Navaroli, are you familiar with the account Libs of TikTok? I have heard of it from the news, yes. Um, Mr. Roth, are you familiar with this account? Yes, ma'am, I am. Are you aware from, that from August 11th to August 16th, that account posted false information about Boston Children's Hospital, claiming that they were providing hysterectomies to children? Yes, I am aware of that and other claims from the account. And are you aware that this lie was then circulated by other prominent far-right influencers? Yes. And are you aware that all these claims, uh, which I have reiterated, were false, culminated in a real-life harassment and ultimately a bomb threat to the Boston Children's Hospital? Yes, I am aware. And this account is still on that platform today, isn't it? Regrettably, yes, it is. Despite inspiring a bomb threat due to the right-wing incitement of violence against trans Americans in this country, because they cannot let go of this obsession with fixating violence and inciting violence against trans and LGBT people, in addition to immigrants, in addition to women of color, this is a party that cannot pick on anyone their own size. 
and they are trying to co-opt an entire social media platform and use the power of this committee and of Congress in order to pursue a political agenda. I yield back. New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on Wednesday at the House Oversight Committee looking into uh, whatever right-wing Twitter nonsense they are pretending is going on. Finally, for now, freshman Congressman Maxwell Frost of Florida, the youngest member of Congress, just elected at, I think he's 25 years old. He called out Republicans for the real reason for holding this ridiculous hearing. We get it. My Republican colleagues wish that the Hunter Biden story would have helped them win the 2020 election. And that didn't happen. And so they're angry about it. And that's the point of this hearing. And so I want to say to my colleagues, don't worry. There's still many platforms you can spread disinformation on, Parler, uh, Truth Social, that have questionable editorial policies but aren't here today. Yeah. Uh, and you can also, by the way, spread that crap on Twitter still today, now that Elon Musk owns it, and now that Donald Trump is uh, welcome back onto Twitter for all the lies he wants. I believe it was not uh, long thereafter uh, Congressman Frost's uh, uh, thoughts there when one of the uh, former Twitter employees revealed that that tweet from Chrissy Teigen, that model with content that I can't share on <laughs> FCC radio, calling Trump a name or two, which the then White House called Twitter to demand they take down the very thing that Republicans we're trying but failing to claim somehow that uh, the d liberal deep state and the federal government was actually doing. Happily, uh, Twitter did not take that tweet down, but that was just uh, about the only example of violations of the First Amendment that Republicans were able to shake out of this silly hearing when you had a president of the United States actually calling and demanding that tweets be taken down, that tweets be censored, that the right to free speech be removed. Anyway, there was much more uh, at this hearing, including some stuff from uh, from right wingers that make them look really, really dumb. I won't torture you uh, for now with that. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. But um, uh, well, but I, yeah, go ahead. Well, I just want to say that that I think that it is a real shame that apparently we're going to have to spend a lot of time debunking Republican disinformation in the well, coming months and weeks. And yeah. Years. But you know what? Whenever they have these hearings, I, you know, even playing just a little bit of it there, I hopefully that gives you an idea of what is coming out of these so-called hearings by these by the Republican majority in the House and how ridiculous it all is and how dumb it ends up making them look. As I've been telling you for several weeks now, uh, those who are concerned about whatever hearings the Republicans are going to hold in the House over the next year or two should not be so worried. You might even want to look forward to them because every time they hold these things, they will be making themselves look like yutzes. I promise you. Now, how much the corporate media properly covers these things? Well, that remains to be seen, and it is something to worry about. But I got to tell you, I am not particularly worried, including about their various promises to impeach Joe Biden for something. I don't know. They don't know. Just as soon as they can figure out something to impeach him for. But best of luck to them on that. And if they do, hopefully they will keep in mind how well it went for them last time they tried to impeach a Democratic president for something that for some, pardon the phrase, trumped up nonsense. After which, uh, back in 1998, when they tried to do that to Bill Clinton, Republicans ended up losing their majority in the House as thanks.
So keep up the good work, kids. <laughs> Desi Doyen in the Green News Report is next. I'm Brad. This is the Bradcast. <laughs> What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Some interesting breaking news here, Des. Oh, goody. I will uh, check it out while you listen to our latest (laughs) Green News report. To maintain the strongest economy in the world, we need the best infrastructure in the world. President Biden touts climate action and infrastructure upgrades in State of the Union address. Law enforcement officials said their plan was to, quote, completely destroy the city. FBI disrupts neo-Nazi plot to attack Baltimore's power grid. Plus, Minnesota is not going to wait any longer. Minnesotans are not going to wait any longer. Minnesota enacts ambitious law to go 100 percent carbon free by 2040. All of those ambitions and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. I'm our Republican friends who voted against it as well. I still get asked to fund the projects in those districts as well, but don't worry. I promised I'd be a president for all Americans. We'll fund these projects. And I'll see you at the groundbreaking. Oh, snap. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, we have seen a lot of State of the Union addresses in our days, (laughs) but boy, howdy. Was that a thriller on uh, Tuesday night? Indeed. In his second State of the Union address on Tuesday night, President Joe Biden highlighted his major legislative accomplishments, including new laws helping veterans exposed to toxic burn pits and long-deferred infrastructure repairs and projects now getting underway under the bipartisan infrastructure law. Biden touted direct benefits to everyday Americans from that bill and the Democrats' land landmark climate and infrastructure bill signed into law last year, the Inflation Reduction Act. Both laws have generated a surge of major infrastructure projects, domestic manufacturing projects, and thousands of new jobs, which Biden characterized as an investment in America's long-term resilience. The Inflation Reduction Act is also the most significant investment ever in climate change. (laughs) Ever. Lowering utility bills. Creating American jobs, leading the world where we're building for the long term. New electric grids that are able to weather major storms and not prevent those forest fires. Roads and water systems will stand the next big flood. Clean energy to cut pollution and create jobs in communities often left behind. Biden also chided congressional Republicans for opposing both bills, framing action on the climate crisis as a moral obligation. Let's face reality. The climate crisis doesn't care if you're in a red or blue state. It's an existential threat. 
We have an obligation, not to ourselves, but to our children and grandchildren to confront it. I'm proud of how, the, how America at last is stepping up to the challenge. And I'm proud about the fact that after years and years of complaining that presidents were not even mentioning the climate in their State of the Union address, we now have a president who is touting some huge accomplishments in that regard. Yep. And Biden also, by the way, called for higher taxes on the oil and gas industry, which hit all time record profits in 2022. And he criticized the industry for keeping supplies tight and prices high, exacerbating inflation as Americans struggled to afford energy and food. And in the middle of a war, something we used to call war profiteering. Because of those record profits, British oil giant BP this week announced it is watering down its climate pledge to reduce emissions by 2030 while increasing its investments in oil and gas. Who could have guessed it? Big Oil's record profits in 2022 have renewed calls to repeal billions in permanent tax breaks and subsidies that are given to the oil industry every year. How about we just repeal the oil industry? In other news, the Federal Bureau of Investigation announced this week, the arrests of two neo-Nazis who the agency says were plotting to shoot up multiple electric grid substations in Baltimore, Maryland. In a racially motivated attack that they hoped would cause widespread disruption and spark a race war. An FBI bulletin in November warned of threats by domestic violent extremist groups to attack critical infrastructure to, quote, create civil disorder and inspire further violence. Since 2016, white supremacist plots targeting energy systems have dramatically increased in frequency. How targeting power grids somehow leads to a race war is kind of beyond me. Then again, I'm not a Nazi. Finally, with Republicans holding the U.S. House majority, climate action is stalled in Congress for at least the next two years. But states are picking up the slack. In Minnesota, Democratic Governor Tim Walz signed into law one of the nation's most ambitious climate laws, requiring the state's electric utilities to reach 80 percent renewable generation by 2030 and fully 100 percent carbon-free electricity by 2040. Nice. That's one. Just 49 other states to go. (laughs) For much more on all of these reports and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. I want to break free. Very good. Very great great news yes, out of that Minnesota. Is good news. And you said that the Republicans were already lying about that uh, <laughs> yes, bill. Yes, the in state Minnesota? Republican yeah. lawmakers were spreading disinfo about it. They were opposed to a clean energy grounds, they uh, a clean energy standard. They said that, oh, you know, they called it the blackout bill. It'll make electricity unreliable and more expensive. Yeah. But in reality, uh, multiple analyses of existing, the existing state mm-hmm. level clean energy standards in Minnesota 
actually showed that the mandates have actually improved grid reliability and have actually reduced costs for consumers. I, so this is a good I, thing yeah. that this is getting I, even further along. I find it hard to believe that Republicans in Minnesota are misleading the uh, voting public. <laughs> uh, by the way, that move in Minnesota to 100% carbon-free electricity by 2040, that's just one of the things, uh, the many things, as we noted at the top of the show, that the uh, state's new Democratic trifecta is now able to do after uh, years of Democrats being thwarted up there thanks to voters in the state last November. Democrats now control both houses of the state legislature and the governor's mansion for the first time in years. They're getting a lot of progressive stuff done now that they are not being blocked, including, as we mentioned, protections for uh, reproductive rights, climate change issues. They're also going to be passing fa uh, paid family and medical leave, legalizing recreational marijuana, and much more. So just a reminder, if you don't like your lawmakers, make sure you vote them out of office and put better ones in. Okay, I mentioned some uh, breaking news as we went into the Green News report. I should note here that everyone else seems to be confirming this, NBC, New York Times, CNN, but it's coming from uh, originally from ABC News. Mike Pence has been subpoenaed by the special counsel overseeing the Donald Trump probes. Oh, uh, this is according to multiple sources, says ABC. It's not immediately clear what information the subpoena from special counsel Jack Smith is seeking, but it follows months of negotiations, apparently, between federal prosecutors and Pence's legal team. Jack Smith, as you know, was appointed in November to oversee the investigation into Trump's mishandling of classified documents. I would say his theft of classified documents after uh, leaving the White House and his obstruction uh, to prevent the government from getting them back. He's also probing the uh, separate effort by uh, Trump and his allies to steal the 2020 election on uh, January 6, 2021, uh, the move according to ABC, will be seen as a major escalation of Smith's probe into efforts by Trump and his allies to overturn the election. And it suggests that Smith's investigation has entered a more advanced stage. I'll say. All the uh, spokespeople, Pence's, uh, Trump's, everyone else have not responded. But there's your breaking news. All right, we have got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. My thanks to all of you who help us stay on your public airwaves now in our 20th year by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. We could not do it without you. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons, you will find me at the Brad Blog. We'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. I've got to break free.